The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And then uh, I encourage you to now open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. We are in a series this summer on the doctrine of sanctification. We are learning what the Bible says about personal holiness. We are wanting to be increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We want to be a holy people. We want to be a people who take very seriously making progress in Christ-likeness. This is why we are saved. We have been brought to faith in Christ. If you're here today and you know Christ, you have come to Christ for the purpose of being conformed to the image of Christ. And so we're looking this summer at a number of facets of progressive sanctification. And we're doing this because I believe there's a lot of confusion today about this whole issue of sanctification. I think we've got, in many cases, the doctrine of justification correct. We, we understand that we're not saved by works, and we understand the, the reality of faith in justification. We, we understand that, and we look forward to, to glorification one day. We understand that. But in the intervening time, this period in between, I think there's a lot of confusion about this whole issue of progressive sanctification. And as I've been telling you over the last few weeks, I believe that much of this confusion has come about in large part due to an influence of what has been called Reformed Free Grace. Uh, Perhaps you're familiar with dispensational free grace where there's been kind of an attitude in the past amongst some dispensationalists that... That, that the salvation is, is non-lordship, it's just kind of a free grace thing, just believe in Jesus, but there's no uh, fruit in your life, you don't necessarily need to submit to the lordship of Christ, and, and so we've got this dispensational kind of free grace, but there's also been in the recent years, in the last decade or so, particularly the last five years, this emphasis on a reformed free grace. It's been called hyper-grace sanctification. And it is a model of sanctification and holiness that largely focuses just on the grace of God, Uh, what God has done for us already in Christ. It is a movement that has been spawned out of a desire to to resist this whole legalistic thing that can creep into the church. And we need to admit that certainly that's the case, that it is easy for legalism to creep into our lives. It is easy for legalism to, to take over and for us to be prone to thinking that we can earn God's favor on the basis of our performance. And so there's been this movement to counteract this, this movement away from that and a desire to avoid all forms of legalism and all forms of kind of behavior modification and cold, heartless, legalistic obedience. The desire is to avoid what is one person has called the plague of performanceism. A desire to move ourselves away from, from this legalistic approach to the Christian life and sanctification. And so it's an emphasis, this movement is, on, on the indicatives of Scripture, not the imperatives. It's an emphasis on the grace in the Word of God, not the law. It's an emphasis on what God has done for us in Christ, not what we are to do today in response. And so this is this kind of hyper-grace kind of movement that I believe has confused a lot of Christians today. Particularly, as I told you last week, there's this belief that the law of God has no place in the believer's life. 
that the law of God, the commands of Scripture, the imperatives of the Word of God, the, the instructions, the things that God is calling us to do and to obey, that that has no place in the life of the believer. Now, admittedly, the Mosaic law has no place in the life of the believer in terms of uh, having its legislation over us, but there is a very real sense in which the law of God, His commands and His instructions are still a critical part of the Christian life, and we talked about that last week. Today, there are many people who are saying that those laws and those commands are simply there to show you that you can't obey and that you need to go back to the gospel. You need to go back to grace. And so they they say the only purpose of those instructions is simply to show you that you can't obey and you need grace. And so some of the catchphrases that we are hearing today amongst this gospel-centered movement are things like, just cling to Christ. Just delight in the gospel. Just bask in grace. Just, just be joyful that you're already accepted in Christ. Just meditate on your justification and remember the gospel and be gospel-centered and contemplate the cross and preach the gospel to yourself and realize that you've been accepted by Christ, by His law and His performance and what He's done, not our, not our own. And so the desire behind this is to avoid this whole legalistic approach to the Christian life. And as I've been telling you, I believe that much of this is helpful. I believe that there has been a a need to correct some of these things within evangelicalism. It's it's brought some well-needed correctives, and I'm grateful for that. I, I think there is a tendency in all of our hearts to lean towards legalism. We tend to just kind of want to check off boxes and think that we're good to go with God because we're performing, and, and God must be happy with us because we're doing certain things And so the Christian life can often lead to moralism, and it can often lead to legalism, and it can often lead to a performance kind of mentality, and none of those things make us holy. We can obey the Scriptures, and we can do what the Word of God says, but none of that can necessarily bring us to a level of holiness. And so this gospel-centered movement has helped us avoid that emphasis and that direction in the wrong direction. But as I've told you the last few weeks, I think this movement has swung the pendulum too far the other way. So in their effort to correct one side of this problem, they have swung the pendulum to the other side, to the other way, in the exact opposite direction. And I believe that this movement has taken us too far. We've gone from one ditch to the other. And what we're seeing now is an excessive emphasis on grace. I think what we're seeing in many circles today is is an emphasis on grace that is unhealthy. It's unbalanced. It It is emphasizing grace over law. It is emphasizing the indicatives over the imperatives. It is not properly balanced. And so my concern when we do that is when we swing the pendulum from side to side, you're going to have errors either way. And what I believe the potential errors are in this movement, when we begin to emphasize grace to the exclusion of the commands of God is that you leave believers without really an understanding of how to pursue holiness in the Christian life. And so that's why I think this term hyper-grace is an appropriate term for this movement. It teaches us that a holy life will be the byproduct of just focusing on God's grace. It teaches us to just relax and, and bask in what Christ has done for us. And it almost makes grace this get-out-of-jail-free card. It makes grace almost this free pass. Well, 
you know, I can just keep sinning because grace will abound and grace will cover that and grace will, will grant me the forgiveness that I need. And Paul says in Romans 6.1, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And what does he say? No, may it never be. And so my, my concern is that not only does this lead to a very passive approach to the Christian life, it has the potential of leading to antinomianism. It has the potential of leading someone to a very cheap form of grace where God's grace just gives us license for unholy living and a casual attitude towards sin and an aversion to the commands of Scripture. That is my fear. If believers embrace this entire movement, I'm concerned. So I think we need a corrective to the corrective. I think we need to bring it more balanced and we need to bring it back to what a biblical understanding of grace is. Let me say it this way. Grace is not free in the sense that grace is a demanding grace. It is free in that God will give you it freely, but grace requires something of you in order to manifest itself in your life. True grace is a demanding grace. It will train you. It will teach you. It will cause you to pursue righteousness. It will cause you to pursue holiness. True grace will inevitably lead to obedience in your life, and the indicatives will necessarily lead to the imperatives. So grace is not free in that you can just kind of pull it out as a free pass anytime you sin and just wave it and say, look, I'm good to go because I've got grace. No, grace requires of us to live an obedient, holy life. I like what one writer says. He said, good works, obedience to Christ's commands, and encouragements and admonitions to be holy are necessary aspects of the Christian life. They are not necessary in the way the legalists suggest to earn favor with God In fact, our works are worthless, totally impotent for that purpose. But obedience is a natural and inevitable and essential expression of love for Christ and gratitude for His grace. Now listen to this. He says, this is the chief practical lesson that we learn from the principle of grace. That grace compels us to love and good works. Grace constrains us to renounce sin and to pursue righteousness. And I think that's true. Grace compels us, it constrains us to renounce sin and to pursue righteousness. So a proper understanding of God's grace should be moving each one of us to greater levels of obedience and holiness. And I want to prove that to you from Titus chapter 2. If you're not there, turn there to Titus 2. You, You may remember a number of years ago when we as a church went through the book of Titus, it took us a number of months to get through this. And we want to return this morning to just a few verses at the end of chapter 2, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. And I want to show you that grace does require something of you, that grace is meant to teach you, it's meant to instruct you, it's meant to exhort you. That's what grace does. And so the book of Titus, as you remember, was written by Paul, To Titus, who was a church planter, he was on the island of Crete, and Paul left him there to establish the churches. And he's giving them all kinds of instructions in the book of Titus as to what healthy churches look like. And in chapter 1, he tells us what the requirements of an elder are, and what an elder is to do, and what the qualities of an elder are, and the character requirements of an elder, and the fact that they're to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's what elders do, and if you're going to have a healthy church, you've got to have healthy elders. That's chapter 1. 
Then in chapter 2, he comes and tells us what the healthy people in the church like, you and and me, what we look like. And what do we look like? Well, chapter 2, verse 2, he describes what older men look like. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, he describes what older women look like. And I'm not here to venture as to when you're older or not. I'll leave that to you. Then in verses 4 and 5, he tells us what younger women look like. And then in verses 6 through 8, he tells us what younger men look like. In verses 9 and 10, he tells us what slaves look like, or in our context today, what employees look like, because there's a relationship there between uh, being employed by a boss and, and slavery. And I know sometimes you feel that way when you go to work. But he's describing for us what these qualities of these kind of people look like. And so he's listing for us the marks of godly church members. And then starting in verse 11, he describes for us why this should be the case. And I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 11, there's that little word for, for the grace of God has appeared. So he's going to justify his his statements up to this point. He's going to describe for us why the church needs to be holy and why the church needs to manifest the holiness of God. And the reason he's going to cite for that is the grace of God. Look at verse 11. Let me just read this text. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." I want you to notice that here in these verses, Paul says that grace instructs, grace teaches, grace moves us to action. Grace is not passive. Grace is not something that you just bask in and wait for for God to just kind of wave a magic wand over you and make you obedient or holy or or, or forgive you from everything uh, just by uh, taking advantage of grace. No, grace moves us to action. Grace compels us to obedience. We'll look at that in just a moment. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He, He wants us to understand first, looking back at the grace of God, which has appeared, and this is clearly a reference to the giving of Christ. God has sent Christ. The grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. So so we might say that grace is a person. Grace is not just this thing out there. Grace is a person, and grace is most manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And this grace has appeared in Christ. Why? Look at verse 11. To bring salvation to all men. That's why it's come. Christ has come to bring salvation to all men. doesn't mean that every single individual is going to be saved, but He has come to make salvation a reality for all who will place their faith and trust in Him. And so grace has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace of God has come in the past to bring sinners to Himself, to reconcile them to Himself by His grace. That's God's grace in the past. And I think most of us here this morning 
probably understand this. There's not a lot of controversy about that. We understand that God has sent Christ. He sent Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. He sent Christ to die on the cross to remove His wrath against our sin. We, we understand that. There's not a lot of confusion about God's past grace. But I think the confusion comes in God's present grace. And I think there's a lot of confusion about how God's present grace works in our life today. And I want to take you through the rest of these verses. I want to give you four specific lessons that God's grace teaches us. If you're a believer, you are in the school of grace. If you are a Christian, your teacher is grace. And I want to lay out for you this morning the curriculum of grace. I want to show you what those who are in the school of grace need to learn and what grace specifically teaches us. And I want you to see specifically that the real fruit of divine grace, listen, is a holy life. The real fruit of grace is a holy life. So let me walk through these with you. Four lessons that grace teaches us. Number one, it teaches us to avoid worldly temptations. God's grace in progressive sanctification, first of all, teaches us to avoid worldly temptations. Look at verse 12. This grace of God, verse 12, is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present Age. And I want you to notice that very first word in verse 12. It is the word instructing or teaching or disciplining. And the idea here is that grace instructs, grace teaches, grace tells us what to do, grace trains us, grace educates us, grace provides us instruction. And the word here is paiduo, where we get the word pedagogical. And something that's pedagogical is something that teaches. And Paul wants us to understand here that grace teaches, grace instructs, grace compels. It's got a flavor of parenting. Your parents, you understand this. You understand that at times in your parenting, you need to teach and instruct and exhort and train your children, and yet there's also times in your parenting where you need to discipline and correct and refute and reprove, and both of those emphases are present in this word. Grace teaches, grace instructs, grace exhorts us, but grace also corrects us and disciplines us and reproves us when we get off the way. That's what grace does. That's what you do in your parenting. We, as you know, have five kids, uh, two teens and three preteens, and we are in the midst of this right now, and there is lots of instruction, and there is lots of teaching, and there is lots of pedagogical kind of conversations going on. There's a lot of exhortation and instructing and training and teaching and correcting and rebuking and reproving and love in the midst of all of that. So if you're a kid here who's still listening, your parents are doing this because they love you. It's our job. And Paul says that's what grace does. Grace instructs us in the Christian life. Grace trains us. Grace disciplines us. Grace corrects us. It's an act of grace. It's not a passive grace. 
It's not a grace you just bask in and, and thank God for everything that He's done in Christ. That's true, and we're grateful for that, and God has done all those things, and we do relish those things, and we are thankful for those things. But grace is not something you just kind of kick back and relax and live your life in. It's an act of grace. It teaches us and trains us. In what? Look at verse 12. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Grace teaches you to say no to certain things in your life. And you need to understand this. Grace wants you to say no to things. Grace wants you to forsake things and to renounce things and to refuse things and to repudiate things and to pay attention to things and make a decisive break with things and to consciously turn away from things. Grace wants you to make a break with sin. Grace is your teacher. Grace is instructing you to say no to worldly things. Like what? Look at verse 12. It's instructing us to deny ungodliness. Ungodliness. Is there any ungodliness in your life? Is there any sin in your life that you're hiding? Is there any attitude in your life where you are know that you're not living in accordance with God, where you're living in an attitude as, as if there was no God? As a practical atheist, are you living that way? I'm not saying you are, but as a practical atheist, are you living in such a way that you don't pay attention to God and His instructions in your life? That's ungodliness. It's anything contrary to God and His Word. And and grace says you need to say no to those things. Grace says you need to run away from those things. Grace says you need to make a break with those things. Grace says you need to, to definitively choose to not live in those patterns of sin. And not only that, keep reading. Verse 12, it instructs us to not deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Any worldly desires in your life? Any lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes or boastful pride of life? Is there anything in your life where, where the world has a foothold into your life? The, the love of pleasure or the love of materialism or the quest for money or prestige or to fit in with this world or to have what this world has or to live for what this world lives for? Is there any element of that in your life? Paul says to Titus, listen, grace teaches you to say no to those things. Grace wants you to make a break with those things. It wants you to avoid those things and to run from those things and and to make a conscious decision to, to, to choose not to live in light of ungodliness and worldly desires. And so I want you to understand that grace is active. I like what writer says. He says, grace is not a syrupy sentiment that makes us always passive and positive. It's not something where you just say, you know, everything's great, everything's wonderful because, you know, God's grace covers that and God's grace forgives me and God's grace is, it's okay because God's grace overlooks that. No, that's wonderful. No, that's not what grace does. That's a very passive view of grace. Grace says, say no to sin. Go the other way. Make a break. Run from sin. Mortify it. Exterminate it. Hate it. Make a fast break with sin. Repent and confess and move away. It's active. Not passive. Grace does not eliminate our need for holiness. It encourages it. Grace does not say, it's okay. It's not a big deal. You don't have to worry about being holy. Don't don't worry about obeying the commands of Scripture because you can't anyway. Don't worry about that. That's not what grace says. Grace says, stop. Run. Pursue holiness. 
So in the face of worldly temptations, this is what God's grace wants you to do. So when you're there and you're faced with a temptation, when you're faced to to look at something or do something that you know is sinful and you know is worldly and you know is ungodly, in that moment, you need God's grace. But you don't need His grace primarily in in the fact that you're going to sin and you're going to let grace cover it. You need grace in that moment to run away from it. That's exactly what God's grace does. It enables you to say no, to run, to strive in the power of the Spirit and the means of grace. Number two, grace teaches us to avoid worldly temptations, but it also teaches us to pursue godly virtues. It also teaches us to pursue godly virtues. And here's the flip side. On the one hand, grace tells you to say no to certain things in this life, but, but grace also tells you to say yes to certain things in, in this life. So, so grace isn't just this, this horrible thing, this person telling you, no, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Grace is not this somber, horrible thing. No, grace is also joyful, and grace is saying, but pursue this, and love this, and give your life to this, and make sure that this is part of your life. It's critical that we understand the doctrine of sanctification tells us to say no to things, and it tells us to say yes to certain other things. This is the whole put off and put on relationship in Scripture, that Scripture tells us on the one hand, we need to put off certain things, and on the other hand, we need to put on the corresponding virtues. So on the one hand, you want to put off the vices that you know are ungodly in your life, and on the other hand, you want to replace those things with the virtues that will correspond to those vices. You need both. Ephesians 4 says you need to lay aside the old self and put on the new self. You need to take off the sinful patterns that are in your life, and you need to replace them with godly habits and godly patterns. It's not enough just to say you need to stop. It's not enough for a thief just to stop stealing. When does a thief stop becoming a thief? When he starts working with his hands and giving to others. It's not enough just to stop saying unkind things and and being unkind with your words. It's when you start saying kind things and use your speech to edify others. You've got to put off and you've got to put on. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, on the one hand, grace teaches us to say no to the things of the world like ungodliness and worldly desires, but it also tells us to say yes to living sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. You should have noticed those three qualities that he tells us about in verse 12. They each define a different direction of your life. It's very important. There's an inward direction to your life. That's how you relate to yourself. And there's an outward direction to your life. That's how you relate to others horizontally. And there's an upward direction of your life where you relate to God and your relationship with Him. And all three of these terms relate to one of those directions. So grace teaches us to be sensible, that's your relationship with yourself, and grace teaches you to be righteous, that's your relationship with other people, and grace teaches you to be godly, that's your relationship with God. Grace wants you to make progress in all of those areas. So let's look at these briefly. It wants us to say yes to what? Being sensible. 
Grace wants you to live sensibly. It wants you to live in such a way that your life is self-controlled, that is circumspect. It is a life that has kind of pulled in the loose edges of your life. It's the one life where you're living in a, in a way that's reasonable and, and sensible and godly. It's a pretty important quality because Paul's listed it a number of times in Titus. Go with me back to chapter 1. And I want you to notice that in verse 8 of chapter 1, he tells that us that elders need to be this. Chapter eight, uh, 1, verse 8, he says, elders need to be hospitable, loving what is good, and sensible. An elder needs to be sensible. And then if you come over to chapter 2, in verse 2, older men are to be sensible. He says that older men are to be temperate, dignified sensible. Older women are to be this. You can see this in verse 4 where it says that they may encourage the young women, and that word encourage is the word to be sensible. It's a verb. And then you can see that young women are to be this way in verse 5. They're to be sensible. And the verse after that, verse 6, says young men are to be that way. Young men are to be sensible. You see the pattern? Sensible, 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 sensible. God wants you to be sensible. God wants you to live your life in such a way that it makes sense. God wants you to live your life in a way that's reasonable. God wants you to live the self-controlled life where the loose ends of your life are reined in. It's the, it's the trimmed up life. The first time this word occurs in the New Testament, it occurs in Mark chapter 5 where the man in Gerasene was, was uh, filled with demons. You remember this story back in Mark chapter 5? He had a demon, and he was uh, so unreasonable that he was screaming. He was gashing himself with the stones. He was so strong that they couldn't bind him with chains or anything. This man was out of control. And, and so Jesus approaches this man, and Jesus commands this demon to come out of this man. And after this man had the demon cast out, it says this in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. It says, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind. That's what it means to be sensible, to be in the right mind, to have the right mindset about what it means to walk in holiness. That's exactly what grace teaches us. Grace teaches you and me to be sensible so that we can be clear-headed and exercise cautious self-control and making sure that our life is not out of control. That's the relationship with yourself. That's the inward relationship. Look at the next one. Verse 12, it says you need to live sensibly and righteously. That's your relationship to others. Grace teaches you to have a right relationship with other people. It treats you to, tells you to treat others with respect. It tells you to love others. It tells you to treat them the way Christ would. It tells you to live in harmony with others. It teaches you to resolve your conflict with other people. Grace teaches you to be at peace with all men. So, are you here this morning, and are you out of fellowship with someone? Have you offended someone? Have you done something that you know has broken a relationship with someone close to you? If that's the case, then to whatever degree you are able to, whatever you are able to in your power, God wants you by grace to go and resolve that, to deal with them in a way that's righteous. And then the third term describes your relationship with God. Grace teaches us to live godly. 
in the present age. Right now, right now, where you're at today in this life, where you are presently at in your relationship with God, above all, He wants you to be godly. And this is the opposite of the term ungodliness in the first part of the verse. Ungodliness is asabeah, and godliness or godly is eusebea. And so he wants you to put off ungodliness and say yes to godliness. This is what grace teaches you. Grace in your life is not a free pass. It's not something you can just say, well, I really messed up there. I guess grace covered that. That's true. Grace does that. But grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace says, pursue holiness, strive for godliness, put in some effort. It trains you, it instructs you, it sanctifies you, it teaches you. It's a demanding grace, it's an active grace. It's not some form of passivity that you can just bask in. It is an active grace that drives you and compels you and I to live a life of holiness. Is that true in your life? Is grace teaching you? Are you availing yourself to the means of grace, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the fellowship of the church, prayer, confession of sin, obedience? Those are all means of grace by which God enables you to do those things, and so are you taking advantage of those? Do you see this kind of grace operative in your life? There's a third lesson that we learn from grace. It's in verse 13. Grace teaches us to anticipate Christ's return. Grace teaches us not only to avoid worldly temptations and to pursue godly virtues, grace also instructs us and teaches us to anticipate Christ's return. So good. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace teaches you to look ahead to the return of Christ. Grace says you need to live your life in light of the fact that at any moment, Christ could be here. From the earliest days of the church, believers have held out hope that Christ could be here at any moment. Just read the New Testament epistles, and what was, what was their expectation? What was their hope? Their hope was Christ could be here at any time, at any moment. This is the doctrine of imminency, the fact that Christ could appear. He could appear right now. Do you realize that? He could come right now. He could come today when you're driving home and you're heading to Chick-fil-A. He could appear. He, he could... Maybe not Chick-fil-A. Maybe some, well, they're not open on Sundays. That's not going to work. <laughs> Scratch that. Remove that from the tape. You want to be at Chick-fil-A on Sundays. Grace teaches you to say wherever you are and whatever you are doing that Christ could be here right now. So verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope here is a term for the second coming, and then he defines it, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace says, listen, look forward to the fact that at any moment you could be in the presence of Christ because he could return at any minute. And the reality of that should prompt us to live a holy life. Let me say it another way. Do you want to be doing something that you shouldn't be doing when Christ shows up? 
Do you want to be engaged in something, some activity, some sin, some passion, some whatever, and Christ shows up? The blessed hope in the appearing of Christ should promote in us godly living. It should promote in us holiness. In other words, the hope of Christ's imminent return is the hinge upon which our holiness turns. You need to live every moment of every day as if Christ's feet could hit this earth and He could appear, and suddenly, before you know it, you're in the presence of Christ. It's always been the case that the coming of Christ purifies us. That was the case in the first coming of Christ, and that is the case in the second coming of Christ as well. Let me just give you a couple illustrations of this from the first coming of Christ. Simeon, that man who was told that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah, way back in chapter 2 of Luke, says he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And that word looking is the exact same word as the word looking here in Titus 2 verse 13. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was with a great excitement and anticipation looking forward to the first coming of Christ. And what kind of man was Simeon? Luke 2 verse 25 says he was a righteous and devout man. Why? Because he was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And it affected how he lived. How about Anna? Anna, just a few verses later in Luke chapter 2, says she was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And again, that word looking is the same word as looking here in Titus 2 verse 13. She was looking forward to the redemption of, of Jerusalem, meaning she was looking forward to the first coming of Christ. And what kind of woman was Anna? She was a woman who never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. She was a godly woman. You want to know why she was a godly woman? Because she knew at any moment the Messiah could come. How about Joseph of Arimathea? Remember him? The man who took the body of Jesus off the cross and put it in his tomb. It says in Luke chapter 23, verse 53, that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Actually, verse 51, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for what God was going to do through the Messiah. And at that point, he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know whether Christ was going to resurrect and establish his kingdom. He couldn't have known what it was, but he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And that term waiting in Luke chapter 23 is the same word here as in Titus 2 verse 13, looking. And what kind of man was Joseph of Arimathea? It says in verse 50, he was a good and righteous man. You get the point? When you live your life in the constant view that Christ could come back, it changes you. It transforms you. It makes you want to look forward to His coming, and it makes you want to live your life as if any moment you could be in the presence of Christ, and that's the reality that it's meant to impact our life with. Grace is active. Grace teaches you. Grace wants you to be a person who strives for holiness and strives for godliness. Grace wants you to put effort into your life to live like Christ who could be here at any moment. Is it? Is that taking place in your life? Or have you kind of bought into the contemporary evangelical attitude towards grace that it's a passive thing that you can just kind of bask in and relish in and relax in? Grace is active, and grace teaches you to anticipate Christ's return. Number four, 
Here's the last one. Grace not only teaches you to avoid worldly temptations and pursue godly virtues and anticipate Christ's return. At number four, it teaches us to practice good works. Grace instructs us and teaches us and exhorts us and disciplines us so that our lives can be a manifestation of good works and good deeds. You say, wait, we're not saved by good works. Absolutely. We are not. You are not justified by the works of the law. You are not saved by your works. You do not come to Christ in any fashion and in any way through your good works. Not at all. But you are saved for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you're a believer, God has actually prepared good works for you to live in and grace teaches you to live in those. So good works don't save you, but good works are the fruit of your salvation. You are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. You're saved by grace, but not a grace that is alone. You're saved by a grace that teaches you to pursue God, God, good works. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Who gave himself, speaking of Christ, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Not only did God give Christ, Christ gave himself. That's what verse 14 says, Christ gave Himself. And why did He give Himself? Two reasons. He gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed, to buy us back, to set us free, to ransom us from the lawlessness that we were stuck in by our sin, that all we could do was disobey the law of God. And so Christ came to liberate us, to ransom us, to pay the price, to set us free from every lawless deed, and secondly, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. You understand that, God, that that's why God has saved you? To be pure? To be holy? To, to be a people that when God looks at you as His own possession, He says, those are mine, and you can tell they're mine because they're pure and they're holy and they're living a life that manifests it. The word purify is the word katharizo, where we get our word catharsis, which is a cleansing, a cleaning Something that, that happens to kind of clean you and cleanse you. That's exactly what Christ has done. Christ has cleansed you. He has washed you clean. This is the new covenant promise that you will be clean. He will give you a new heart and a new spirit and He will cleanse you. Go back to Ezekiel 36 and 37. That was the promise of the new covenant. God said, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on them and give them a clean heart. That's exactly what's happened. Christ has cleansed you. He's purified you. He's made you a new person. That black heart is now white. What's the point of all this? Look at the end of verse 14. The whole point is so that you and I would be zealous for good deeds. Zealous, zelotes in Greek, where we get the word zealot. And what's a zealot like? You ever, you ever met a passive zealot? There is no such thing. There's no such thing as a person who's zealous for something but extremely passive. 
that the very nature of being a zealot is someone who's aggressive, someone who is striving for something, someone who is burning with zeal, someone who is contending for something earnestly. A zealot is not just relaxing. They're not just basking in something. A zealot is out there pursuing it actively. And Paul says to Titus, you need to teach the people that that's what grace teaches you. Grace teaches you to be zealous for good works. Zealous for holiness. Zealous for godliness. Zealous for righteousness. Look at how prevalent this theme is in this book. Just very quickly, and then we'll end with this. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Look what he says to the young men. Young men, listen up. Urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be dignified, or show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified. Young men, is that you? I'll do this, although I probably shouldn't. If you're under 60, you're probably a young man. Some of you are rejoicing. You ought to be an example of good deeds. You ought to be an example of a dignified life. You ought to be an example of a sensible man. Your life ought to be dominated by the works of God and the Spirit in you and through you. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. As those who are subject to our government, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Are you marked by that? Are you a citizen of the country who's willing to submit to the government and be an example of good deed even when you don't like what the government's doing? You need to be an example of good deeds. Look at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds because these things are good and profitable for all men. Look at verse 14. Our people must always learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. You get the point? God has saved you so your life would be different. God has saved you so that now grace will instruct you and grace will teach you and your profession can be put into practice. And Paul wants us to understand here that grace is active. It's passive. It's not passive. It is active. It is instructing you. It is teaching you. And grace does not rule out any kind of good works. Grace compels you to good works. Grace compels you to a life of holiness. Grace compels you to a life that manifests His grace. That's the school of grace. That's the school you and I are in. And I want you to understand this because I want us to be people who champion God's grace. Let, yes, let's be people who love God's grace, but let's be sure that when we say that, we know what we're saying. Let, let's be those people who are sure that the grace of God, when we say that, is what we love and it teaches us to be holy and godly. When we say that we love the grace of God, don't use that as a passive pass to get you past your sin. Say, we love grace because grace is compelling us to godliness. Is that true in your life? May we be a people who appropriates this grace and lives it out. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this clarification on what grace is. 
And Lord, if we're honest, we'll all confess that at times we have taken advantage of grace. At times we have presumed upon your grace. At times we have thought, well, I can do this because grace covers that. Lord, that, that leads us to antinomianism. And so help us, Lord, to fight that. Help us to flee from that kind of attitude towards grace and help us to be discerning as we're reading today in our culture and our Christian authors and Christian writings. Lord, help us to be discerning about this. Help us to be a people who understand grace and understand that grace is teaching us and compelling us to a life of holiness and obedience. May we be those who are schooled by grace living as if Christ could be here at any moment for your glory and for your honor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.